Earlier this week, a brother in Christ contacted me through the internet and asked me what my favorite commentary on the Bible is or what my favorite commentary on Bible scripture would be. Now, that's a tricky question since I believe that it is clear that we all have blind spots, every single human being, and even a commentator and a New Testament scholar. And I believe that the proper way to understand scripture is ultimately through a church community. The way that we're going to make known the manifold wisdom of God, the way that we're going to remove those blind spots before us is to allow a group of people where two or three are gathered, allow that to be the, the, the benefit of us understanding our Bible. That being said, I want to explain again, as I do weekly, that we are going through this Bible, Bible series, Returning to Our First Love, to introduce us to, um, into the concept of re-falling in love with God, allowing ourselves to move away from our own carnal understandings of God, possibly the things we've been taught, the teachings of man, the traditions of man, the history of the church, you know, historic Christianity, and we want to point ourselves into the direction of understanding God as he has made himself known from Genesis to Revelation. Again, that has been the goal of returning to our first love is understanding our Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Prayerfully, some of you will find some of the changes I'm going to introduce this morning into our reading and into our Bible series a bit of a benefit and uh, that you'll be blessed by the clarity that I'm going to be bringing forth. Ultimately, my goal is to promote a handling of the Bible that promotes good hermeneutics and interpretation. What that means is I want to be honest in my handling of the Bible. I want to, I seek a true, a reasonable expression of a message that glorifies the one true God. That's what we should be opening up our Bible and seeking. Are we seeking a way to demonstrate to the nations that the God of Israel has shown himself to be faithful? That's the goal as I pick up my Bible and I, I look into the things of God, as I want to know how God has made himself known through the ancient historical Israel, as well as his faithfulness today. Where is God in regards to his church? I want to know, I want to know that ultimately God's purposes are summed up in Jesus, and I, I make sure that when I'm reading my Bible that I understand Jesus to be the all in all. So as I do that, I want to make sure that in accordance with my reading, I'm allowing Jesus to be my all in all. That as I'm reading, I'm not coming up with other constructs or other thoughts or possibly my own hopes, my own desires. No, I want to make sure that Jesus' gospel, the gospel he made known in that first century that the apostles endeavored and suffered and persecuted, that they endeavored to make known to the nations. I want to make sure that that is at the forefront of my understanding the Bible. I consider ancient history, the genre, the writings of the Bible. I read continuously to become familiar with the writings and try to acquaint myself with the culture as well as the mind frame of the author of the writings that I'm reading. So for my favorite commentary on scripture, I cannot produce a book this morning. I can't tell you what favorite commentator I have or what commentary I enjoy. My way of studying and recommendation to each and every person in the body of Christ is to do so through variety. Do not allow yourself to just be listening to one person or one way of thinking. Instead, challenge yourself. Heed 1 Thessalonians 5.21, where it says to prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, and let go of that which is evil. I spend time reading, and st reading study Bibles, I use commentaries, um, pretty much any commentary I can get my hands on. Again, I just walk into an anonymous library and just say, well, that's a commentary on the Bible, let's read it, let's see what it says. If I may encourage you, um, many of us might find this pretty encouraging, this week I was at the bookstore and they have a new Bible called the First Century Study Bible. And you actually can read, and I, you know me, I, I went right to Matthew chapter 24, I said, okay, let's see what they have to say. And sure enough, they note that the abomination of desolation could have been the destruction of Jerusalem the second time. I said, okay, glory to God, I kept on reading. And then it talked about fleeing to the mountains, and it gave you a long discourse 
on the church that fled to Pella in the first century. So glory to God that I, I see some amazing things happening in Bible um, understanding in our day. And um, I enjoy, again, reading different study Bibles, reading different commentaries, and seeing what, uh, as the church is semper reformanda, to use a Latin phrase, that the church is ever reforming, and we're growing into a proper understanding. So among listening to teachings and sermons from men like Tim Martin, Dr. Don Preston, Pastor Dave Curtis, um, in this case, this morning, I'll be sharing some details from Ed Stevens, Alan Bondar, Michael Sullivan, and again, I can just give you name after name that you should just look up. And, and find these amazing details. Another resource that I've been using is the Fulfilled Covenant Bible, um, a lot of their resources and um, commentary on um, the Bible. Now, simply I'm going to give you a very simple way to get a good commentary on the Bible. You go to www.google.com, right? You go to Google and you put in something like Don Preston, the Book of Thessalonians. And I promise you, a host of information is going to pop up. Now, I'm not going to tell you to just read that and say, this is what I believe. No. What you want to do is you want to read that and you want to follow 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Prove all things. You want to challenge yourself. You want to do what the Bereans did. And you want to say, is what this man's saying true? Does it match up with what the scriptures say? And we're actually going to do that here in a little bit. As I study, I wrestle with the biblical text in a way of seeking the contextual, meaning what it meant to its primary audience, and also... What was the spiritual application that Jesus was bringing to that first century audience? Again, Jesus was correcting a wrong frame of thinking. The, the Jews of the first century, they had their hopes set on all the, the lust of their flesh. We want a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem, a new temple. We want all these things. We want God to be here with us. Yet Jesus comes and he says, okay, well, we're going to change your way of thinking. A man is not going to see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And he begins to give them all sorts of parables that... Only the spirit will make known. That only understanding things through a spiritually discerned mindset that 1 Corinthians chapter 2 speaks of, that's the only way you're going to understand the things of Jesus. That's the only way you're going to understand the things of God. First came the natural, the natural carnal physical understanding that was expressed through Old Covenant Israel, and then would come the spiritual, which would be made known through Jesus Christ. So, as I seek to go about understanding this contextual and spiritual gospel being made known through my Bible... I notice that there's one element that goes all the way from the Old Testament to the New, and it's the prophetic hope that was being made known through Old Covenant Israel, God's Old Covenant people, and ultimately how it was going to be fulfilled in the first century church. You see, that's the goal of our Bible. All through study resources and listening to the wisdom of others, I am able to come to an understanding of my Bible by fellowshipping with other believers and, and searching out the matters, proving all things, reading various commentaries and study Bibles and praying that the church will finally get their, their mind on the things of God and focus and, and reform ourselves in accordance with the truth of Scripture rather than the traditions of man. It's been a long journey. I'll tell you, it really has. It's been a long journey for the church. And we're getting there. I'll tell you, we're young, we're growing up, we're maturing, but it's taking some time. A major reason I'm honored to be the pastor here at Blue Point Bible Church is that we believe that our discipleship is through proper biblical understanding. The way that we make known the manifold wisdom of God, the way that we disciple the nations, the way that we edify the lost out there is by saying, you must understand the word of God. You must understand the Bible. That's why we are Blue Point Bible Church. We believe that it is through the Bible that we can properly be discipled according to the word of truth and ultimately know God. That's our message, that we can know God through understanding the Bible. That's a reason to glorify God. That's why I'm proud to be the pastor here, by the way, and I glorify God each and every day. So the goal of our series, again, is to simply help you fall in love with God. 
to encourage you to return to a biblical way of looking at God rather than the variety, the, you know, the buffet-style version of God that we are getting from our culture. So let's get started. I want to first uh, recommend you to look at this chart I offered in your bulletin this morning. You're going to see we're going to go through a couple books here, this, and we're going to give you an overview of Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, as well as Romans. And I'm going to invite you to read that on your own time. However, I'm going to give you an overview this morning. Now, this side is for your notes. On the back side, where I'm going to direct your attention here for a moment, I'm going to share some details with you. The first thing I want to make notice of, and and this is a struggle for me, because I like to uh, praise God for the things that he has done and um, the things that are good and, and blessed, rather than spending my time focusing on the things that are not good and the things that are not blessed. And um, one of my problems with my Bible is that my Bible is not in chronological order. It's been a pet peeve of mine for a long time that I'm not reading my Bible in chronological order. I get confused. I read, you know, the book of Isaiah after this book, and I'm, I thought Isaiah's in the midst of 1 Kings, but somehow it's five books, ten, six books after 1 Kings. So now I'm confused. Who's Isaiah speaking to? Where is he speaking? So what I've done in, um, in regards to the New Testament this morning is provided an excerpt from Ed Stevens' book um, in regards to a chronological reading of the New Testament. And you'll see, as posited by Ed Stevens, Matthew would be the first gospel published around A.D. 31 to 38. And then from 38 to 44 would have been Mark. And then from 51 to 52, after the, the, first, um, the, the second journey of Apostle Paul making known the manifold wisdom to the Gentiles, now he's writing a letter in 51-52 to the Galatian church. You'll see here this big map that I have on your page. This is actually a a map of Paul's journeys. You'll see all these cities mentioned. If you look closely, you'll see Colossus, you'll see Laodicea, you'll see Ephesus, Pergamum, you know, all these different places that Paul had visited, all the way down to, if you look on the bottom of the map, Jerusalem. Also on the bottom left, you'll notice that I put Acts 14 was for the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. So if you go back to your Bible and you study in context, you'll see, oh, okay, so the Apostle Paul gets the wisdom of God. Then in Acts chapter 14, he begins making known this wisdom. Then I'm going to point to Acts chapter 15 and 18, the second missionary journey from 49 to 54. And then ultimately Paul's third missionary journey before he ends up in Jerusalem, gets captured, and then has to go through all the process of going to Rome and ultimately to his slaughter. So I point all that out because I want you to understand the context this morning of what we're saying and and what we're reading and and, and the details of that time. I must say, uh, Final Decade Before the End by Ed Stevens has proven to be a pretty uh, exciting resource. And what I'm going to be doing at the end of us going through the New Testament in the next coming uh, about two months now or a month, I'm going to be offering a, a, a review on Ed Stevens' book and you know, giving you many of the details that I found in that book. So in order to promote a historical contextual perspective as to maintain our calendar, I'm going to be offering a little bit different of a reading for the next couple of weeks. This morning I'm going to recommend at the end of my sermon, I'm going to tell you what you should be reading for next week. It's going to be a big portion of scripture. Um, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, Titus, and 1 Timothy. Um, bless you. And what I'll be doing each week is I'll be telling you something to read. Some weeks you'll be just reading one book, the book of Hebrews, the book of James. And ultimately, on September 27th, we will be concluding our New Testament reading and we'll be jumping into the book of Revelation, which, again, will be our challenge from October to Revelation to uncover the details of the book of Revelation. However, reviewing the chart and paying attention to the writings in history will be vital. We will not be following the necessary order of the writings, but I believe that this will be... a beneficial to our, our understanding of our Bible. It is vital in our reading to, uh, to understand a couple things that I want to bring before you this morning before I start sharing some details from Scripture. 
the genre of literature that we're reading is so important. Again, it's important when you pick up a book to know whether you're reading poetry, whether you're reading a biography, whether you're reading a letter. What are you reading? In our case, we're going to be reading letters this morning from the Apostle Paul to various churches within the regions that he has made known the wisdom. We have to know the historical context. We have to know who are these people? What is the story in that culture? What are they fighting against? What are the issues? One of the major things you're going to see in some of the readings I'm going to bring before you this morning is that their major issue was the distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles felt they were the best because they were rich and wealthy and lived in all these beautiful nations that worshipped various gods and, and uh, loved idolatry. Whereas the Jews felt that they were the, the, the superior people because God, the true God of Israel, had made himself known to them from the beginning. So they felt that they had the right to boast in who they were. You know? And you're going to see that boasting in the flesh is a big deal in our Bible. Also, another important thing to understand is the corporate context of our Bible. That, unfortunately, we live in a very individualistic society where we only focus on ourselves. And we believe that if I'm going to make it, I have to focus on what I'm going to do best at the expense of everybody else. Again, look at the way our culture works. Now, that's not the mind of the ancients. Again, one commentator, Tom Holland, has gone to a great effort to show that the ancient people did not think in in an individualistic way that we think. They were a very corporate people very corporate-minded people. That way, when you see in your Bible, for example, one of the first things I learned in proper hermeneutics was ye. Ye is actually a plural for you all. It doesn't mean you. So when the Apostle Paul is saying ye all, he's not saying you, talking to you personally. He's talking to a variety of people within the church at Corinth. You all, you know, you all are the body of Christ. You all are the temple of God. You see, that it's, there's a key to understanding that corporate context. Ultimately, what we've been doing is we read through the law, the prophets, and the gospel, which is our Old Testament, right? We've been moving through this understanding, and we've seen, I made mention in my sermon about the book of John, how Jesus came to spiritualize things. Again, Jesus says that, you know, in contrast to the way the Jews were worshiping God, that now you must worship God in spirit and in truth. Ultimately, we've seen through the book of Acts that I sought to preach last week, I sent out a podcast later in the week of a revised sermon, so I encourage you to visit our podcast site and find that sermon. In the book of Acts, what you're seeing is the restoration of Israel. You're seeing the gospel being made known to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is speaking before the Jews, and basically they're rejecting him, and you know, you can imagine speaking all sort of blasphemies against the truth of God revealed through Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, Now I will turn from you, and I, I will go to the Gentiles. Ultimately, we'll see through the book of Romans that Paul's decision to go over to the Gentiles is based on his desire for his people to be made jealous. He wants fleshly Israel to repent, to see that the blessings are being fulfilled in the Gentiles, and then for fleshly Israel to say, okay, well, we're going to miss our blessing if we don't turn to Jesus Christ. We see in the book of Acts, for example, that Israel was called to be the witness of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, they were called to make known the wisdom and understanding of God. National Israel, old covenant people. Yet they failed. Again, you read the prophets in your Bible and you see that they're rebuked time and time again. If the Babylonian invasion and the Assyrian invasion wasn't enough to show that that system was being rebuked, now Jesus was going to come. God was going to put on flesh and he was going to come and he was going to give his spirit to his people. He was going to take up residence within his people. That way they could actually be the witnesses they were called to be in the first place. Bless you. A lot of blessings going on around here this morning. Um, So... Again, God is going to empower his people to be his witnesses. He's going to do that by taking up residence, Jesus being made manifest through the body of Christ. And that's how we are called to be the witnesses of God to the nations. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter 43. 
that God said that I am going to do a work among you, that you shall be my witnesses, but you will have to forget the former things. And he's telling Old Covenant Israel, forget the way that you were called to do this before, by law, legalistically, focused on the flesh, that we are the children of Abraham according to the flesh. No, John the Baptist made a very clear indictment about how that was going to work, that God could raise up children out of these stones to be children of Abraham. Do not delight in who you think you are of the flesh. So it's important, again, to understand the transition that was happening in that time. You have to understand that while the gospel was being made known to the Jew primarily, and now to the Gentiles, the Jewish problem was that they were under law. They were boasting in, we have the law, we are the God, God's people. And ultimately, you see Jesus' indictment against them very clearly in Matthew chapter 23. He tells them, you know, you're coming under judgment. This temple's about to be broken. This city is going to be demolished, and you know, you're going to be led captive into nations, which we know happened in AD 70. To the Gentile, now the Gentiles, they think, well, we've never been under law. We are, you know, we're allowed to worship God however we want. We have all these variety of gods. We're wealthy. We're blessed, clearly blessed. Again, you can understand David's problem in Psalm when he says, you know, why do the wicked prosper? And you see now he's coming to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul's preaching to them and telling them, your riches aren't going to save you. Your idols are actually going to bring you down. You've been in darkness without God, without hope for generation after generation. And now we're giving you the opportunity to hear the gospel. And ultimately, we know many Gentiles were shaking their head, were not interested. But there were some from among the Jews, a remnant from among the Jews that were coming into the glories of God. There was a remnant from the Gentiles that were coming into the glory of God. And that's the issue we're seeing in the first century. The problem is, is again, now imagine, some of these Jews are coming into Christianity. Some of these Gentiles are coming into the true teachings of Jesus. And now they all have attitudes of superiority. Everybody thinks they're better than each other. You have the Jews over here arguing about that they're under the law. They're circumcised. They're pleasing in the eyes of God. You have the Gentiles arguing, we've never been under the law. The law is coming under judgment. Your system failed. So everybody's bickering at each other. Everybody's arguing back and forth. And ultimately, that's the context that you get to when you get to Paul's writings. When you end up at the book of Galatians, you're ending up, Paul's saying, how have you fallen away from the gospel? Did the law save you? Why are you going back to be circumcised? I told you that the circumcision means nothing. Uncircumcision means nothing. Faith in Jesus is where it's all going to be. And that is going to be Paul's indictment as we get into the book of Galatians here. So, again, I just want to make sure that we understand the transition happening in that first century. There's the gospels being preached. The Jews failed. They were not the witnesses of God that they were called to be. And the Gentiles are now being invited into the blessing, blessings of Israel's hope being fulfilled, their resurrection, and... Now you have all these problems within in the churches. So all of that noted, I just want to say a couple things, and I'm going to breeze through here uh, some of these texts. Call upon the name of the Lord. Again, it's not talking about audibly calling upon the name of the Lord. It's, it's, in a sense, it's saying seek out God. When we say seek out God's face, we're not talking about actually looking for a picture in the clouds or you know, all these sort of images. We mean it in a, a conceptual way to seek God, to, to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. That's what we're saying. We're not saying to seek out a physical face or to look for any signs. Again, that is, you're going to see that in, in the readings of these writings, that they continually talk about calling upon the name of the Lord. It's important to know that this call is not something audible. It means calling, crying out to God, knowing that you need Jesus as your Savior. Also, seeking the Lord's face, as I mentioned. Death is another important thing here. We're going to see death talked about a lot in the New Testament. And it's important to understand what death we're speaking about. And I'll tell you very simply, we're talking about the death that the prophets talked about. The Apostle Paul is very clear. I preach nothing other than what the law and the prophets said. 
Right? He says, my gospel is the same gospel that the Pharisees are looking for, the same hope of the resurrection that they are looking for. Now the question is, what resurrection and what death? Well, if you go to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, it tells you about that death. Actually, that's the death that is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. Also, Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Israel, when they had wandered after idols, the northern empire, and they came under God's judgment for being idol worshipers, and he says, I divorce you. Remember, he tells Hosea to marry a prostitute, and he goes through this whole prophetic way of showing that how God is dealing with Old Covenant Israel. Or in that context, it was actually the northern tribes of Israel. So another important thing is we must understand flesh and blood. When you read flesh and blood in your Bible, it does not mean flesh and physical blood. What it's talking about is the flesh and blood people who thought that they had the right to claim we are the children of Abraham. We are the flesh and blood of Abraham's lineage. We are the chosen people of God. No, what the whole point of the New Testament and Jesus' ministry is making known is flesh and blood won't matter. There is no glory in the flesh. There's no boasting in the flesh. You could say you're of the old covenant. And unfortunately, it seems that within some circles, there's a misunderstanding that flesh only means law. Now, again, the Gentiles did not have a law, but the Gentiles can wander after lust of the flesh as well. And the, the lust of the flesh for the Gentile was that they felt that they were superior. They were rich. They were, you know, they were Gentiles. They were never under the law. So now they're t- saying their boast in the flesh was we were never under the law. We, are, you know, we don't have the system... You Jews are coming under judgment. Jesus came to judge you. He spoke very clearly against you in Matthew, pretty much the whole book of Matthew. Again, if you read Jesus storming the temple, Jesus giving indictment after indictment. So he's very clearly speaking against that system. And the Gentiles believe that, oh, well, since he's not speaking against us, we have the right to glorify in our flesh. And the entire point of your New Testament is that nobody, no man, has the right to glorify in their flesh. That if it wasn't for Jesus... The Jew would not have the opportunity to worship God. The Gentile would not have the opportunity to worship God. So again, flesh and blood. I've inserted a, a couple, well, actually every verse that you can find of flesh, and blo- uh, flesh in your um, New Testament um, in these readings from Romans to Galatians. And uh, I urge you to do further study on that. So after the Apostle Paul completed his missionary journeys, we read about in the book of Acts, recorded by Luke to tell Theophilus the Acts of the Apostles spread at the, to the ends of the earth, we now have the Apostle Paul writing to the churches that he had established. About 20 years later, after he goes on these long journeys, around 51 to 52 AD, he writes to the church at Galatia. Now remember, he had been, preaching, he'd been diligent in preaching the gospel among the Gentiles. Jesus' first fruits, Jesus was the first fruits of the hope of Israel being fulfilled. That if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, resurrection is coming to Israel. That God is showing himself faithful. That all that the prophets spoke about, Ezekiel chapter 37, the resurrection of the dry bones in the valley, Israel's dead ones, that's coming to be fulfilled. Daniel chapter 12, the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That there will be a new time, the time of the Messiah. That was all coming in that generation. They knew. They said, if Jesus has been raised, this hope is being fulfilled. This is a glorious truth. As you go about reading for the rest of the New Testament, it's vital to keep in mind that these teachings are all built upon Jesus' teachings. Again, the apostles received the teachings of Jesus, and now you have the apostles writing letters to different churches to correct the teachings that are either being misled or erroneous, and so forth. Some of Apostle Paul's teachings are are deep and confusing, and as the Apostle Peter notes, that the wicked are unstable and distort the message of the Apostle Paul's writings. And I can tell you, I see that by and large in the church today, is that we... The, um, the wicked definitely, or not the wicked, but the unstable, they distort the scriptures and misunderstand what the Apostle Paul is preaching about. 
In the book of Galatians, and I'm going to give you a very quick overview this morning. Galatians is simply about covenant transition. Again, you see very clearly from the beginning of the book of Galatians that they have wandered after the gospel of circumcision. Now they believe that you must be circumcised to come into a relationship with God. And the Apostle Paul, all throughout the book of Galatians, says, who has bewitched you to think that you can go over to the works of the law? When have the works of the law saved you? Have they given you the spirit of God? No. Again, judgment after judgment in Old Covenant Israel's history, very clearly shown that the flesh is nothing to boast in. That the Old Covenant, the works of circumcision, are nothing to boast in. He even goes far as to say, when Abraham received the blessings of faith, was he circumcised? No. Therefore, the blessings of God, the hope of God, precedes the blessings under law. And you see, that's what the Jews were very confused about in that first century on on the Judaizers, they are called through Scripture. They're very confused. They think, oh, well, maybe we need to go back over to the law. Maybe the law is going to be pleasing to God. Ultimately pointing to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that was going to make it very clear that, no, works of the law are not acceptable. But again, they're living in that tension, that already but not yet. They're living in the blessings of Jesus, yet they're not seeing all the physical blessings. Actually, they're being persecuted by all their brethren. So you imagine, you're living in a culture where you're being persecuted, you got the Gentile, even your own brothers and sisters don't get it right. They're all bickering and arguing about who's better than each other. There's all sorts of issues in the church. So the first letter the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Galatia, he tells them, to sum the whole book up, he says, the gospel that you're hearing, the gospel of circumcision, that is not a gospel. He said, what is a gospel is that all men will be made a new creation through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that's going to be changing you. So he, he... you know, again, he speaks very clearly against them and tells them that you know, you're going over to a false gospel, you're going over to law, you're going over to flesh and blood, you're trusting in the flesh. And he concludes with the lust of the flesh, both Jew and Gentile, both of you, that if you focus on the things of your flesh, it's going to lead to adultery, fornication, selfish ambition, conceit, and et cetera, et cetera. You can read all of that in Galatians chapter 5. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, if we're going to be united as Jew and Gentile into one body through Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, meekness, love, blessedness, self-control. And he goes on, basically, stop focusing on the things of the flesh. Stop boasting in your flesh. There's nothing there. Now, the Apostle Paul in 51 to 52 AD, then he writes to the church at Thessalonica, again, one of the churches he visited on one of his journeys. I have to say at the forefront of reading anything on Thessalonians, just simply look up Dr. Don Preston. Look for his book, We Shall Meet Him in the Air. He gives a beautiful commentary on 1 Thessalonians, the whole book on 1 and 2 Thessalonians. The most quoted verses out of our Bible is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Again, many people know this as a rapture text. That now, all of a sudden, it went from Jesus coming into the world, preaching the kingdom of God, making known a kingdom that is not of this world, to ultimately, one day, the world is going to be turned into that kingdom. A kingdom that is not of this world. It doesn't work for me. I believe the world is here, and there's the kingdom that is in this world, that is not of this world, that is spiritual. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians 4, if we actually understood Greek, but we don't, not everybody at least. Um, I don't think anybody in this room understands Greek. Okay, good. So uh, if you catch the power of what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is speaking about, I'm going to make this very quick. It's saying, you shall be caught together in the spirit. There's a couple words you must know in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Harpazo doesn't say caught up. Rapture theory, right there, broken. It means caught together. It's exactly what's talked about in Matthew chapter 24. The gathering of the elect from one end of heaven to the other. So God said in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's writing an encouragement. You're being persecuted. You're being beat down. You don't understand what's happening. You have Jews, Gentiles arguing with each other. I'll tell you what. 
The day is coming. The time is coming. Do not be misled. Comfort one another with these words. That the dead that have been persecuted for Jesus, that have been killed for Jesus, they are going to be caught together with you that are living. That in the twinkling of an eye, there's going to be a change. You will all be caught together in the Greek word air, the spirit. Again, it is not a word used for up, direction, sky. It's a completely different word. The word air in Greek, E-I-E-R or something of that matter. Um, E-I-A-R, again, I'm not good on the spelling, Google it. Um, if you look up that word air, it means spirit. So what Jesus ultimately, or what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica is if you hold together, you keep the faith, you encourage one another, you become the glory. The church was the glory of God in that time. The church of the, is the glory of God in this time. This is the hope of God that Christ is formed in us. It was never supposed to be Christ being formed in your new body that you're going to be dancing around with in heaven. It's Christ being formed in this body. This is the heavenly body. This is the corporate body that was being caught together in that generation in the spirit. Comfort one another with these words. We will all be gathered. We ultimately know that that is a past tense passage that was fulfilled in the first century. That God did indeed catch together all his people from that destruction of Jerusalem. They all fled to Pella. They were saved. Not one Christian died in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. To me, that's a glorious testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians, written a little later, the Apostle Paul's contrasting again the covenants, the kingdoms. They had a lot of problems with these Judaizers in their midst. They, they're telling them, you have to cling to the law. You have to go to the law. Now you have people coming in saying, listen, you, the end already happened. You missed it. The end happened. You could imagine it's pretty confusing. It's like, wait a minute, we missed it? He says, the end already happened. Now the Apostle Paul is writing them saying, listen, the, the end did not happen. There's some things that have to happen before the end comes. The son of perdition has to be revealed. The man who speaks blasphemies against God must be revealed. And also, there will be a great falling away. Many of the people that you see in the church that are glorifying God today, they will not be there tomorrow. Or they will not be there in that day when that day approaches. Because many people are going to fall away from God. One of the most exciting things I like about that passage is that if they thought the end was, not, was already happening, clearly the end was not a world-dissolving end. If there were people in your Bible in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that believed that the end that Jesus spoke about, again, that's the church, they believed that the end already happened. Well, most people today are saying that the whole world has to be destroyed and everything's going to be all chaotic, and that's going to be the end. Well, these people believed it already happened, so there's a problem here. Clearly, somebody's not defining things in line with the proper understanding that was happening in the first century. Don Preston has an amazing article on that. Again, I would just simply urge you to use that Google. Google 2 Thessalonians Don Preston. Amazing resources. That's my way of doing commentary. Check all the resources we can. Google as much as we can. Learn as much as we can. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. The Apostle Paul is very clear that the sanctification of God is coming by the sanctifying of the Spirit, the belief in truth, that this will be your everlasting comfort, that if you understand the sanctification of the Spirit and the belief in truth. He goes on to continually tell them about their Christian conduct. And I urge you, spend some time, for example, in Second Thessalonians 3, 7 through 14, Reading about Christian conduct. What type of people we're called to be. Then he writes to the church at Corinth. Church of Corinth, again, a very rich city, very wealthy city. These people were prideful. It might be as if you were talking to somebody in New York. You know, again, New Yorkers are known for being a pretty prideful breed. You know that? We're the northerners. We're, uh, we're up here. We're in a wealthy city. So, again, picture trying to preach the gospel to somebody in New York City that's very wealthy today. Again, that, that's the problem here. He's preaching to Corinth. You know, these Gentiles there. There's a large majority of Jews there as well. If you read uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 4, you see that there were, he reasoned with the Jews and the Gentiles there in Corinth. When I enter into a reading of 1 Corinthians, I'm always reminded of studying with Pastor Alan Bondar in Fort Myers. 
he did an amazing series on 1 Corinthians that you can simply look up on the internet called Transitions. And he highlights that what you're reading through in 1 Corinthians is constant transitions. It's a transition from the wisdom of the flesh, right? If you read 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, there's a wisdom of the flesh that the world boasts in, and then there's a wisdom of God that the world finds foolish. But you see, we're the opposite. We're spiritually discerned, and we find the wisdom of God to be a glorious thing. That's why when we see people suffering in tribulation, we understand that that's for the glory of God. While it looks horrible to the world, and we, we pray for our brothers and sisters that they'll be strengthened by God, ultimately we know that it's for the glory of God. That is being spiritually discerned. The Apostle Paul is very clear throughout the First Corinthians that you must deliver, your, deliver the flesh over to God. Again, stop focusing on the flesh. Remember, Jew, Gentile. They're having these big problems. Everybody's focused on their flesh. They're focused on their own desires, their own hopes, their own whims. They're, you know, the, Jew, the Jew feels that he's superior. The Gentile feels that he's superior. And it's very important to understand that in context of 1 Corinthians. That's why the Apostle Paul, right from the beginning of the chapter, he's upset with the church because he's saying, some among you are saying you've been baptized by Apollos. Some are saying that I am of Paul. You know, again, there's all these divisions. What's the difference if you've been brought in by a Jew or a Gentile? You see? That was, that was the concern in that, that time. Now they're all divided. They're saying, I'm, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of the Gentile church. I'm of the Jewish church. No, there's only one church in Jesus Christ. And that is one of the major contentions, again, that's being dealt with through all your New Testament writings. The Apostle Paul is very clear throughout 1 Corinthians, admonishing the church that they are the body of Christ, that you are called to be the body, that all the members amongst you have a goal and a purpose. And if I was to sum up the entire book of 1 Corinthians, what he's simply telling them is the goal of your body is to be a blessing to each other. You're here for the edification. Get rid of the immorality among you. Get rid of the people that are focused on the flesh, that are boasting in the things of themselves, and focus on the things of God. Get behind me, Satan, for you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And that is the exact context of what's happening in the first century church. They're thinking all these boasting in the flesh. Everybody's all divided, thinking of their own things, their own hopes, their own desires. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, all things are fulfilled through Jesus. The promises are yes in Jesus. There's no Jew, no Gentile, no Scythian. You know, again, a phrase that most people don't even know what it means. Um, none of that. You're one in Jesus. It's important to understand the body that the Apostle Paul is speaking about. I'll tell you what. Spend some time this week reading 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 11. Right? As you read, you're going to notice it talks a lot about the body. Even go further. Read chapters 12 up to chapter 12. You're going to notice that it's talking about the body, the formation of this body. That the, the Gentile, that He's yelling at the Corinthians because he's telling them, you're all gathering together. You're coming together for your own selfish needs. You gather for the Lord's table, and you're hungry. You're coming here because you're hungry. You're coming drunk. You're not coming for the edification of the body of Christ. Ultimately, that's the goal. You'll see that many times highlighted throughout 1 Corinthians, that the body is for the edification of the believers. Yet all these people are caring about all their boasting in the flesh. So the body is, is the body of Christ. He's saying that you're all members here in this one body. Then somehow... People that are reading their Bible end up getting to 1 Corinthians 15 and say, that's all about getting a brand new physical body. Well, as I was reading from 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 14, the body he was talking about was the church. Now all of a sudden it's about my physical body getting you know, put together in heaven. And again, it doesn't work. I'm urging you to read 1 Corinthians as a letter. Spend some time just reading through the whole thing as a letter. Hopefully when you read your letters from your friends, you don't read like the first five verses and then, you know, put it away, and then tell somebody about the letter and quote one of the lines from the letter. You don't even know the full letter. You don't know the details. You know, how are you going to read your friend's letter that you haven't seen in a while, and then all of a sudden you're going to pick out one little line you haven't read the rest of the letter, 
and go and tell Sandy how that person's doing. You don't know all the details. You must spend time reading the New Testament as letters. That's how we're going to come to a better understanding of our Bible. As you get to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, again, you see very clearly the Apostle Paul focusing on these divisions, fleshly wisdom that's among them. Get rid of this fleshly wisdom. Stop doubting the things of God. Understand that the church is the hope of glory, that the church must be fully edified, that if we're not making known the manifold wisdom of God correctly, who will? And that's what he's encouraging the church in that time. Get these things right. And then Romans. I'll tell you, I'm not going to have enough time for Romans this morning. However, I'll tell you, the book of Romans, you want to talk about a seriously divided community. You know that the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem, uh, from Rome in 49 by Claudius. They were allowed to return in 54. So now here we are at the book of Romans around 58, early 58 AD, and the Apostle Paul is writing to the Roman church that has some serious issues with the, the dissension between Jew and Gentile. These people are really divided. Remember the Jews... Imagine getting kicked out of a city and now you're allowed to vote back. And now you're dwelling with other Gentiles in the church. Everybody's arguing. Everybody's bickering. Nobody understands the goal. That's why ultimately the beginning of Romans is Romans 1.16. For the gospel that I am unashamed of is for salvation and the power of God to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And for the rest of the book of Romans, Paul is giving a discourse on how the Gentiles are being brought into a Jewish hope. That God ultimately will show himself faithful to the Jew. That yes, while you were in the flesh, you were wicked. But God is going to show himself faithful by providing a remnant from amongst the Jews. And he's also going to bring a light to the Gentiles. And he's going to pull a remnant out from amongst the Gentiles. And they will glorify God as well. Well, that's the New Testament hope. That's the hope of glory. That Christ would be formed in the church. That as the Jew and Gentile begin to put off the flesh and instead come into the spirit, that they would make known the manifold wisdom of God. That is the resurrection. You know that Israel was dead because they failed to walk as witnesses of God in the Old Testament. That was the call. You are called to life. Make me known. They failed. Jesus comes, gives them the spirit of God, gives us the opportunity now to make known the manifold wisdom of God in spirit and in truth. That's your Bible. That's the gospel. That's what we're preaching. So, again, I encourage you to read through the book of Romans. I'll be sending out much details this week. Um, I have so many more notes than I could preach through. I want to end with a couple thoughts here. First is a dedication from Ed Stevens' book. To those first century apostles, prophets, and saints who suffered the loss of all things, and even their own life in order to fully and faithfully proclaim the excellencies of the cross, they suffered even their own life in order to fully and faithfully proclaim the excellencies of the cross. They suffered inhumane torture, mocking, scourgings, chains, imprisonment, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated in every inconceivable way. Every conceivable way. Because they believed that the sufferings of that present time were not worthy to be compared with the glory that was about to be revealed to them. Their blood finished filling up the cup of wrath that was poured out by Christ upon their persecutors shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem. Men and women of whom the world was not worthy. They were relentlessly pursued to the death by their persecutors. But they obtained a better resurrection and were made perfect. Precious is this in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. They now rejoice with exultation in his glorious heavenly presence and wear the victor's crown of life. Every tear has been wept from their eyes. So the key that when we're reading these things and we read about the first century and we read about all that God was doing through that first century people is not to artificially insert ourselves into the text and say, here we are waiting for the end just like them. It's to understand what God was doing in and through them and how that hope of glory was being fulfilled in that time and ultimately what that means for us. As we go through these details, next week I'm going to be issuing part two of this message. We want to ask ourselves, what is the gospel? And I believe I've made known most of that this morning. 
We want to understand that these are letters written to the church to correct errors that were going on in that first century context. And ultimately, we can use the details to understand how that applies to us today. As you read through your New Testament, there's one thing you want to ponder. What was changing? What does Hebrews 8.13 have to do with my New Testament? Why does it say that something was vanishing away and something new was coming about? Something new was being formed. What was beginning? What was that age that was coming to an end in Revelation chapter 21? What are the details? What was making people cry tears and death and sorrow? I'll tell you that if you read through your Bible consistently, you will find that Israel failed to be witnesses. The glory is in the fact that we have the opportunity to have face-to-face fellowship with our God. That if we dwell in that and we live in that reality that we have Christ and that we can see God face to face something that the old covenant people did not understand something that they longed for because they failed time and time again and they went over to idolatry because of their focus on the flesh their own desires their own hopes their own whims that led them astray into idolatry and I believe sadly it's leading many people today their own hopes and desires into idolatry as well leading them further and further away from understanding the gospel completely fulfilled the hope completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ So please join me in prayer, and I look forward to sharing more details with you next week in regards to how our gospel is indeed fulfilled and is good news from the first century to today. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory. We magnify you, Lord, for all that you have accomplished in through the church of Corinth, Lord, the church at Rome, the church at Galatia, as well as the church at Thessalonica, Lord. We thank you for the details that you make known in the scripture, Lord, that we can continue to search the scriptures, Lord, to understand eternal life and to seek you, Lord, and to know you. So, Lord, we magnify you and we praise you. In Jesus' glorious name, amen. At this time, I'm going, I'm sorry, I'm just going to ask our, uh, we're going to collect our missionary offering. And I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and we'll collect our missionary offering this morning.